HPPodcraft.com. have been reporting bizarre sightings of huge alien creatures, large packs of invading cannibalistic predators, seemingly from another world. It was a living object. The first except the driver that I had seen since entering the compact part of the town. And had I been in a steadier mood, I would have found nothing whatever of terror in it. Clearly, as I realized a moment later, it was the pastor. Clad in some peculiar vestments, doubtless introduced since the Order of Dagon had modified the ritual of the local churches. The thing which had probably caught my first subconscious glance and supplied the touch of bizarre horror was the tall tiara he wore an almost exact duplicate of the one Miss Tilton had shown me the previous evening. This, acting on my imagination, had supplied namelessly sinister qualities to the indeterminate face and robed, shambling form beneath it. That was a reading from H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chris Lackey. I am Chad Pfeiffer, and uh, we have a guest with us today. Matt Parisi. Hey, he's back. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. Hey, one other thing before we get started uh, back into the story here. We've got a new promotion, and I'm pretty excited about this one. We are going to have Andrew Lehman doing another reading. Yay! Yeah, and I'm really excited about this reading because it is... The Call of Cthulhu. All three parts, the whole kit and caboodle. Now this, we're going for, because this is a, a longer than the others, so we're going for a kind of a higher number, a higher ransom of $3,000 American. 3000 Once we reach that amount, we'll release the, the recordings. Obviously, we haven't done them yet. Contribute whatever you can. We'll get there, you know, hopefully pretty soon, and, and we'll yeah. be able to release that. I just got signed off, too. We're going to use the music from Reaper Clark that we used in the original yes. episode when we, yeah. when we covered Call of Cthulhu. So that's going to be a really cool package. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah, and I love Reaper's music. I'm very excited about it. So hopefully uh, this ransom gets paid quickly. You know what's been exciting to me is the story that we're covering now, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. When he finally gets there, he sees that it's just a New England ruin, basically. Yeah. Fishy, strange, all desiccated. There's some kids playing in the street, and they're all, like, uh, apish-looking children. I think he calls them yeah. s- simian-visaged. And he's repulsed by the sight of Devil Reef off in the distance. Right. This place, Devil Reef, that he'd heard about, he could see it. And most of the houses there are empty, uh, even though there are some have rags stuffed in the windows here and there. There's dead fish laying around on the street. Yeah. He can almost appreciate the architecture, and... And get by the creepiness, but he sees this old Masonic hall that is now given over to this degraded cult that Anna Tilton had told him about. Yes, the the esoteric order of Dagon. And the church across the street, which has this high basement, he sees something cross through a doorway that, that freaks him out. And that's what we heard in the opening. Some kind of robed figure that goes by. And whatever he sees in the thing's face or whatever, it just really chills him. But it's wearing it like a tiara, right? It was wearing one of the, like a tiara that he saw when he was back at the Historical Society in Newburyport. And, you know, I think that one of the reasons that this story gets hold of the imagination for so many people is that everybody has had an occurrence or even has lived in a place where they found themselves among sort of squalid conditions, right? Or... You visited somewhere and you kind of felt an air of depravity or, or illiteracy about it mm-hmm. or, or something like that. You've had experiences like that, right? Guy? Oh, yeah. When I went to East Moline. <laughs> what? <laughs> How dare you? Oh. <laughs> well, I will admit that uh, in our hometown, you can find pockets that have an intimate vibe, that's for sure. I feel bad for saying that. It was Don't a joke. Bad. It was it's a, a joke. joke. It was <laughs> okay. So at this point, he, he pulls into the, the main town square, and that's where the Gilman house is. And he could tell that it used to be 
a really nice hotel, but it's really faded over the years. I don't know if you guys got this, but it took me a while. I finally pieced it together that the Gilman house, the name, Gilman. I don't know if you guys picked up on that, but it's got kind of a, a fishy connotation to it. No, I don't get it. You guys, no, uh, you didn't. I don't get it. I had to, I poured over this for like all night last night and I finally figured that out. Figured what out? I don't get it. <laughs> I, I found this whole thing disturbing. It was like what we talked about before with the Gilman house. They keep up this facade of this town almost for appearance's sake. It's one of the most disturbing things about the story because they yeah. don't seem to need these things, but they keep them going and they're all kind of decayed reflections of what they should be. Yeah. It's really creepy. Our man, Robert Olmsted, decides he's going to take his luggage into the Gilman house to see if he can just leave it there for the day. And the guy, there's an old man there that's working, but he doesn't actually have the incident. So there are some people here that who aren't afflicted with whatever this, you know, degenerative disease is. Yeah, exactly. Because he's old, you know. Yeah. Most people disappear when they're old. Exactly. So that's terrible. I mean, if you had to commute to Innsmouth, that was your job. I've had bad jobs. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. In fact, there's this chain grocery store here, First National. Yeah. Right? It's a uh-huh. chain, so they're all over there. So he decides he's going to head there first. After he checks out the bat, he's, he sees there's a restaurant there. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, like I'm, man, not, I, I'm not eating that yeah. place. He goes to the grocery store, and there's a, a 17-year-old kid there who is also, he's a commuter, right? He, yeah. He doesn't like working there, but the company transferred him. That's like the worst oh, transfer. Gosh, that is the worst transfer you could ever get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He must have done something wrong. I would love to hear the backstory. Well, what do the residents pay him with? I mean, do they just come in and give him, like, doubloons or something? <laughs> you take doubloons, right? Blah, blah. <laughs> I want this bag of chips. Uh, here's a tiara. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like working there. He heads back to Arkham as soon as he can when he's off shift. But he gets in a conversation with our protagonist, and the protagonist learns some more about the town. Well, first he asks about the public libraries and, the ch- and uh, you know, if there's a historical society and the guys, the kids. No, no, there's no public library here. There's no chamber of commerce. There's there's nothing. And he says, don't go north of the river. Okay, that's the creepy neighborhoods. And people don't come back from that neighborhood. So just right. don't. I know you're from out of town. Don't go up there. There's a number of rules about the town. Doesn't he say there are certain places that are just off limits? That, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That there's some sort of code being enforced upon people who don't who aren't from Innsmouth. Don't linger around the churches or the refinery. The church especially has been, you, people are warned off of there. They have right. rituals they do in there directed at some kind of immortality or something. Well, because the kid said, his, his pastor in Arkham said, don't ever go to the churches here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're some bad's going on. And during the day, all of the citizens, they kind of are hiding. You know, they're just not out on the street. The kid even speculates that they just might be laying around drunk from all the moonshine they're always gobbling up. (laughs) (laughs) And he also uh, talks about, yeah, he talks about that there's a ton of bootlegging and that there's always chanting going on throughout the city in the spring and in the autumn. Yeah, especially around April 30th and October 30th. What's the significance of the April 30th date? I didn't... I, October 31st seems obvious, but is there something I don't know about April 30th? I think it's... Well, May May 1st is the spring equinox. Yeah, the May yeah. Day is a big sort of pagan... Well, specifically, April 30th is... In German, it's Valpurgisnacht, right? That's It's like the big... There's two big occult holidays, and it's the spring and fall. And yeah. Halloween and Valpurgisnacht, oh. which is April 30th, or it's the night before May Day. It's the equinox. It's the, the fall and spring equinox. Which these guys adhere to that calendar. For, for some part. strange reason. And they love to swim. <laughs> Boy, do they. They just love swimming. He goes, man, for some reason, everybody's always out swimming. I don't understand what it's about. All the kids are out swimming. Yeah, and I can't eat... I don't understand it. They're all out swimming, and I can't move any of these water wings. Nobody's buying them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, um, 
the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, they have uh, these great T-shirts, which are uh, Innsmouth High School Swim Team T-shirts. <laughs> I have one. It, it's, I love it so much. It's, it's really good. He says, everybody remove your swim caps, and nobody has swim caps on. <laughs> People also seem to disappear when they get older. Yeah. And they get you know, more deformed as well. You know, the grocery kid says, you may hear some weird sounds. Supposedly, the waterfront hovels are they're connected by some kind of tunnels. So you might see yeah. hear some weird stuff there. And uh, you probably, though, if you want to learn more about this place, you probably don't want to talk to any of the locals. But there, there is one guy that you can talk to, right? The one guy, good old Zadok Allen, who is the town drunk. 96-year-old yeah. <laughs> <laughs> town drunk. 96, man. Whatever he's drinking, it's it's doing good for him. Well, he 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 seems to favor raw whiskey, which is my favorite. Raw whiskey, right? <laughs> he says, "Well, if you talk to that guy, you know, he might give up some info to you. I can't tell you how reliable it's going to be, but right now, Old Man Marsh is still around. Not Captain Marsh, but Old Man Marsh who runs yeah. the refinery. But you're not likely to see him. He he takes a covered car if he ever has to go anywhere. Is Old Man Marsh the one he describes as a? He used to be a dandy. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh huh. And he still wears an Edwardian frock coat, even though he's deformed horribly. That's a great image of a strange, deformed dude, all jazzed up in his Edwardian frock. <laughs> and he, he's not seen that much, but his kids are kind of taking care of the refinery business. So he's the young people that are doing it. Yeah. Some of his daughters, they've been seen wearing that weird Innsmouth jewelry. Mm-hmm. And they're all weird looking. Yeah, they're all weird looking. And here he, he talks about their other... There's the Marshes, but there's also a couple of other families that are sort of the rich families in town. There's the right. Waits, the Gilmans, and the Elliots. Mm-hmm. And the Waits, they come up in another story that we haven't gotten to yet, which is uh, the thing on the doorstep. Oh, right. So that family, that's actually, in a way, kind of a sequel to this. I think that the Waits, who are the people in the thing on the doorstep, they, they escaped during that raid at the beginning of the story. There's some of the escapees. Oh, so right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. That's yeah. who he marries. That's uh, Is it Azanet? No. What's her name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that she is going to turn into a deep one at some point. Yeah. Well, he mentions that she has protuberant eyes in that story. That's not the thrust. Of, that's not even the worst thing in the story. No. <laughs> that's not even what it's about. It's that's just, just like a little just side story. thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's so cool. And then the Elliot. I think that's uh, Missy Elliot. Is the, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the Elliot <laughs> oh golly well this kid in the grocery store is a he's a real informative kid and in fact he's got some artistic talent as well right and he draws him a map he draws of him a little map of the town and since the restaurant creeped him out so much he decides he's just gonna buy some cheese and crackers and that's gonna be his lunch <laughs> so lovecraft it's so obviously these are the things that lovecraft did when he traveled well uh so our guy decides he's gonna make a little tour packages up that uh, map his cheese mm-hmm. and crackers going to do that and then when the eight o'clock bus comes back he's going to jump on there and get the heck out of here so he rolls by the refinery he sees that it's mostly empty he's kind of touring the town right he's got yeah. this this real uneasy feeling because there's so many empty buildings around but here's creepy noises coming out of a lot of these so-called empty houses yeah yeah like horse he says uh horse doubtful noises so even <laughs> though these are like deserted buildings there's something going on in there. something says, going on yeah it says like brooding compartments given this is like that was cool. Brooding compartments given over to cobwebs and memories and the conqueror worm. Which is All right, yeah. Reference, little Poe reference, yeah. And, uh, you know, as he's walking around the street, there's like Fish Street and Water Street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These aren't as subtle people. No. You know, in the way that they, they do, it, It's definitely themed. Yeah. Yeah, just take a right down there on Fish Human Hybrid Road. <laughs> you know, a left on Shameful Ancestry Drive. That'll get you down there. <laughs> Yep. You can't really overlook the, the degradation of the town, the connection to the Great Depression, it seems 
sort of obvious to me. I don't know that town was once prosperous. It's fallen into this squalid ruin and they made this deal with the devil for prosperity. And it's just, it's sort of interesting that it's happening in 1931, right? It mm-hmm. must be on his mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a story of its time just as much as we can enjoy it now. It must have been particularly poignant at the time, right? Because this happens whenever there's a great financial collapse of some kind. You can see it you know, in the environs around Los Angeles, if you're going through the desert on your way to Las Vegas, there used to be these little booming travel towns. You know, just mm-hmm. tiny little Western-style towns where people would stop for gas or get some lunch or whatever. And they're not... Nobody's there anymore. Yeah. And you drive by and it's these ghost towns. That's now, you know, but you can actually see it. It's really palpable because they look like they should be bustling, but there's just nobody there. And I wonder if he's even making sort of a connection between the economic decline and the moral decline, that they're connected in some way. I don't know. Because I know that feeling. I just went to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and I there was this little town there that we used to, you know, go to as kids and stuff, and it's just deserted. It's it's just totally decimated by the economy, and it's it's kind of a creepy place to be now. And in towns like that where industry has gone away and maybe there aren't jobs for people, then they do give over to being daytime drunks. And the other thing in this uh, uh, town that's very suspicious is there aren't any cats or dogs walking around. Strange, very strange. Um, and when he's walking around, too, he finds that there is one really nice, well-kept building, a mansion. And he suspects that is probably the Marsh Mansion. He's getting so creeped out by his tour of the town, he decides, I'm going to get some other kind of transportation out of Arkham. I'm not waiting for that bus. And uh, that's when he sees Zadok Allen leaning by the firehouse, just where the yeah. grocery, grocery boy said he'd be. And that uh, that gets us into Chapter 3 and the, and the narrative of Zadok. It must have been some imp of the perverse or some sardonic pull from dark hidden sources which made me change my plans as I did. I had long before resolved to limit my observations to architecture alone, and I was even then hurrying toward the square in an effort to get quick transportation out of this festering city of death and decay. But the sight of old Zadok Allen set up new currents in my mind and made me slacken my pace uncertainly. That's another Poe reference, isn't it? The Imp of the Perverse? Yeah. What was Lovecraft's opinion of this story? Do we know? You know, there's an interesting thing about this. Uh, Lovecraft wrote this story in a bunch of different ways. I think five different ways. He tried different styles, different writing styles. Because at this point, he was not selling to weird tales anymore. Because he kind of had a bit of a falling out with uh, Farnsworth Wright, the guy who was a publisher. So he was trying to make himself a little bit more appealing to other other publications so he wrote this five or six times in different ways one of these other versions of this earlier version of the story still exists and i think you could find it on hplovecraft.com i think it's on that website you can read one of them but the other ones there's no record of he just mentions it in a letter he basically just says my experiment failed and this is the one story that is his own voice and that's the one that he liked the best he sent it over to August Derrilla, and he submitted it to Farnsworth because he he loved it. He thought it was a great story. And Farnsworth said, you know what? I actually really like this story, but the way it's structured, I can't put it in the magazine. Oh, because it just oh. didn't fit. Yeah, it didn't fit because he had to break it down into parts, but it was the way that the parts were. It wouldn't work in the magazine. So as far as we know, then, it's told in a completely different style. So I, I think so. I don't know how different Lovecraft went with these. It's Because it, most of it's just talked about in, in a letter. But I mean, I could assume that it's a libretto for a musical or something like that right you can make that assumption since you haven't read it i could just make it up yeah exactly i'm pretty sure that you're wrong in that assumption but (laughs) you could make it all you like maybe it's just full of sex (laughs) could be could be i mean you wanted to expand his audience right yeah exactly that's what it was okay here we go no lovecraft did four drafts four drafts of it were written and then discarded and finally hp lovecraft wrote 
the story to, in his accustomed manner. This is what he said to Dareleth afterwards. I don't think that the experimenting came to very much. The result, 68 pages long, has all the defects I deplore, especially in point of style, where the hackneyed phrases and rhythms have crept in despite all precautions. Use of any other style was like working in a foreign language. Hence, I, I was left high and dry. No, I didn't intend to offer The Shadow of Innsmouth for publication, for it would stand no chance of acceptance. Huh. So he didn't think it was very good. He was. He, it almost sounds like he was disappointed that he had to go back to the Lovecraft style. Yeah, and he's... Um, at this point in his life, he was feeling really down just because... Uh, he wrote at the at the mountains of madness, and he was really excited about it, and just wasn't getting any any, mm-hmm. any traction at this point. So yeah, he's really really long in the mouth. It's so sad because he's reaching like the greatest Lovecraft period, right? All his great works are like right in this period. Most of them, I think. Yeah, this is this some of his coolest stuff is written. Yeah, this is the best part right here. And you know, I did. I wonder. We're about. Did you say he wrote this in thirty one? That's yep. what we said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's about six years away from dying. Yeah. As you read these stories, they, I, you know, whether he knew that was coming or not, I doubt it. But, I mean, it seems as if there's more of an obsession that wasn't there in his earlier works with immortality. Yeah. There's a lot in this story about, you know, we can live forever and we can visit our relatives. We can go down and see people that are generations older you know, under the sea. Right. And, and in, uh, you know, in the mount- at the Mountains of Madness, the elder things were immortal. They had figured out how to be durable enough to withstand eons. They didn't even need to breed anymore because they could live forever. And it was the same way in the mound, where the extraterrestrials had discovered how to live yeah. forever. This just seems to be creeping up before when I don't, I don't remember seeing that in any of his earlier Well, I mean, work. it's with, with age, I think you start to realize you're, you know, you're going to die eventually. You're, you're not your young, invincible 20s anymore. You're... And you're getting closer to dying in thirties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How but, old is he at this point? Is he what is he, like forty? <laughs> yeah, he's like forty, forty one. Yeah, he's forty one. Uh <laughs> that's a really good way. Now you have your sort of lawless fun twenties and then you have your get ready for dying thirties. <laughs> <laughs> Great way to sell it, man. I had no idea. I was in my get ready for die in 30s. And then everything after that is you haven't really died yet 40s. This is really getting embarrassing 50s. Jesus, will you just die already 60s? But this story actually was published in a book before Lovecraft died. Yes. This was actually the only thing he published that wasn't in a collection. Exactly. It was William L. Crawford published the book. There was 400 copies printed, but only 200 of them were actually bound. And this happened... Um, but, and are those? No, 36. Are some of those still it around? happened in 36. Oh, yeah. They're still around. And they're worth quite a bit, I believe. And it was published in November of 1936. So, yeah, he would die in it um, next year, the following year. Well, at least he got to see that. I yeah. mean, he got to hold that in his hands. That's yeah. kind of nice. Well, the uh, grocery clerk was not only helpful in drawing a map and giving out information about legends uh, of the town, he also knows where you can get some, some of that raw whiskey Matt was talking yep, about. some of that bootleg stuff. It's not cheap for him to buy the whiskey, which is surprising to me, that it's expensive. Well, if it's illegal, usually, you know. And maybe because he's an outsider, too, they charge him a little extra. I actually thought him picking up the whiskey when he goes to get, he just goes to like a variety store or something. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the guy, the, the kid tells him that, oh, there's a place that you can buy. It's so under-described when he actually gets the booze that it made me feel like Lovecraft himself has done this before. You know what I mean? It seems like if it had been something he was unfamiliar with, he would have said, I walked in, everybody was weird, I paid this much for it, he got it from under a desk, 
We looked around. There weren't any cops. Here you go. But instead, he's just like, yeah, I went and I picked up the whiskey. I, I think the exact opposite. I think Lovecraft knows nothing about it, so he just glosses over it. Because as far as we we know, Lovecraft didn't drink. I read the story a couple times, and, and what Fiverr said about it being underdescribed, I couldn't quite figure out how he got the attention of, of Zadok Allen with the with the whiskey. There's the the guys hanging out in front of the fire station, and he doesn't <laughs> want them to see him talking to Zadok. So he like kind of opens up his jacket and shows shows the bottle and gives a little wiggle and winks at him, <laughs> and then he goes down an alley, and then you know Zadok's Wait like, "Hey, hey, I'm gonna get you know." So he gets he lures him away from from the uh, from the fireman. <laughs> I well, that is what happens. I don't know about the wiggle though. <laughs> he just, you know, he wiggles the bottle. He just gives a little shake, like, "Hey, look at this." Oh, see, I imagine you meant he opened his jacket. The whiskey was in his jacket, kind of like when people sell like hot watches or whatever. Uh-huh. And then he gave his waist a little wiggle. That's when you said that. That's what I imagine. <laughs> no, he wiggles the bottle, gives a little like, you know, here it is. Here's the goods. <laughs> when Zadok find that, he's like some creepy cruiser or something. Yeah, exactly. But Zadok doesn't care, you know. He'll do anything for a drink. It's true. He walks away and he's just holding on to that bottle of whiskey. And Zadok's like, "Name, hold up." <laughs> <laughs> Why walk alone? <laughs> Apparently, he'll totally he'll risk his life and like maybe eternal damnation for a drink. Yeah. I don't care what you do to me. Just give me some of that raw whiskey. <laughs> 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 we do get Zadok's story, which is probably the most. This is for me. This is one of the most disturbing. This is the most disturbing part of the story. Oh yeah, yeah. This is great. Well, he gets him down by the waterfront, right? That's where he gets gets him drinking. Yeah, he sees finds a spot that's kind of shielded from view, uh-huh. so people won't see them talking because he's been kind of warned off of that. And he gives him the bottle, and then he gets out his cheese and crackers. It's a funny scene to me. <laughs> 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 I just imagine him sitting there, you know, kind of each face in different directions. Zadok's boozing it. He's spreading cheese over his crackers. You know, they're just both staring off into space. But he has to hang out with him for like an hour before he finally starts giving up the goods. Yeah, well, the dude's just kind of rambling and dodging questions. It's not until he catches sight, till Zadok catches sight of Devil Reef Mm -hmm. out in the water. And that kind of stirs him up and he starts talking. He says, uh, That's where it all began. That cursed place of all wickedness where the deep water starts. Gate of hell. Share drop down to the bottom. No sound and line can touch. Old Cat Nobit done it. Him that found out more was good for him in the South Sea Islands. That's when he kind of launches into the the real story of this. Yeah. So <laughs> he gets into the story going back uh, to the 1800s about Captain Marsh. And things were, they were kind of having a depression back then. You know, things were bad in yeah. Captain Marsh's day. This is after, after the War of 1812. Yeah, it's after the War of 1812, and a lot of people were killed. The mills were losing business, and the town was kind of going under. And because of the, the bad times, people were going to church a lot, and they were praying. Christian churches. Yeah, exactly. But Captain Obed, he, he said, you're all stupid for going to them Christian churches. I got better gods. Yeah. He makes fun of people for being Christians. He makes fun of them for, you know, he's like, we should get some gods like the Indians have. Gods that bring them good stuff. <laughs> you don't have to beg or pray. You just no. ask, and they give you stuff. Yeah. Those are the gods we got to get we in this start town. worshiping those dudes. Exactly. His first mate was Matt Elliott, who's one of the one of the influential uh, families in in Innsmouth. Mm-hmm. But he was right. a diehard Christian. That guy was not going for this old other guy, other gods kind of business. No, he he continues traveling with Captain Marsh. He does. In fact, there's this is another uh, 
Shadow of Earnsmith is similar to Call of Cthulhu a bit in that it is a nested structure as well because our protagonist is hearing a story from Zanuck who is actually repeating some things at this point that were told by the first mate who knew Captain Marsh. So it's a story within a story within a story. Right? And what Zadok says that this first mate, Elliot, had said was that Captain Marsh had found this island in the South Seas mm-hmm. where they had big stone ruins like they do on Easter Island and and the ruins with awful monsters on them. Well, he describes the island, um, gives you a location. He says it's east of Otahiti, which is actually the old name for Tahiti, which I didn't know. I had to look that up. It reminded me of the big sort of monolith in Dagon. That Right. Yeah, that did cross my mind. Because, well, they talk about on these uh, monoliths, there's all these creepy carvings of you know, fish monsters and, and half-human, half-fish thing. I try to imagine what it would feel like if an old drunk were telling me this stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah, I got some things there with fish frogs and some jewelry with monsters on them. <laughs> it does seem... Well, he he thinks it's pretty unbelievable, right? He says, this guy is just telling me a drunken fantasy. Yeah. Yes, he does use that phrase, drunken fantasy, with a PH. And there's a guy on the island, right, he talks to, uh, that old Obed talks to, uh, the chief of the tribe or whatever? Yes. Wallachia? Old Chief Wallachia. Isn't that where the Black Panther's from or something? Oh, I think Black you might Panther? be no, right. No, no, he's from Wakanda. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I'm disappointed in both of you. I've read the story a couple of times, but I, I forgot about this because... It seems like old Chief Wallachia pulls a fast one on Obed Marsh and the people of Innsmouth. Or or is that not a good reading of the story? What do you mean? Well, in a way, like, Wallachia convinces them, hey, you, you know, go my way and I'll give you all this stuff. And then, I mean, Obed might be in on it, but the people of Innsmouth aren't really in on it. Oh, they are not in on this. No, no not at first. But this is before. This is this is kind of his experience you know, back in the e- in the east, because there was another island of people that weren't worshiping these fish guys, and then they go over and they kill everybody on that island. Right. It's hard to tell exactly what happened. All we know is that what's happening in Innsmouth is a repeat of whatever happened on this island. Right. To an extent, you know. Yeah. They at first Obed is just going out there and getting the gold, mm-hmm. and and you're right. The chief kind of talks to him, and he Captain Marsh learns, you know, how they do everything, how they get the gold. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think during the story, Zadok says to the narrator, says, you know, you've got those sharp, sharp reading eyes like Obed Marsh had. Yeah. Which sounds like maybe it's a compliment, but of course that has some chilling significance to it later. It sure does, yeah. Obed learned that the natives were sacrificing young men and women, Uh these god things that live under the sea, in order to get things in return. And they meet out on this island that was heaved up from an underwater city or something like that. And they made sacrifices on May Eve and on Halloween as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's very similar to this to what we know about Innsmouth so far. Now, I don't really know what the motives are of, of the leader of the natives to do this. Well, they get fish. I mean, they get it's the same thing. They get fish and they get gold. Yeah, they get fish, they get gold, but then they have to start doing the human sacrifices. Right. It I mean, seems just, like a pretty big trade-off. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that deal with the devil that is basically being made where at first it's it's you get all this good stuff, but then things get worse and worse, right? Yeah, you have to pay the price, and usually the price is not what you want to, you know, pay for. Yeah, the, I mean, the human sacrifices are the light price. Exactly. That's the, that's the exact exchange. Okay, we can give up a few young people to get this um, prosperity, but the real cost is that you have to give up your bloodline. It's like low interest rates on a credit card, introductory rate, and then they jack you up to like 23%. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is exactly like that. Right. It's exactly like that. And the 23% is now you have to breed with us. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that is in the fine print of my visa contract. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is because it is kind of, so at first I love the way this is written too and it happens a couple times the uh the deep ones they like getting the human sacrifices nobody knows what they do with the people. They also like knickknacks. Knickknacks are cool. 
They give them some carved knickknacks and some people, and they give them some fish and some gold. Great. But then the fish frogs, they get a hankering after mixing with the folks. Uh, <laughs> They're like, yeah. we're lonely down here. I mean, you know, what is this? Just a business relationship? What? We can't hang out? You won't let us come up? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then they make a, a reference to sort of the mountains of madness history of the world. These underwater gods, you know, they could wipe out everybody on the planet if they wanted to. Except for people who have certain signs, such as once was used by the lost old ones, whoever they were. So what are these... What are the signs? Is that like an elder sign that'll protect people from... I, I, I'm i guessing so, yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he's, he's really vague about it. Well, also he mentions that one of the, one of the symbols he finds on the island is the, the swastika, right? On the, on the Kaneki Island, or the, on the island? Yeah. Right. What, what is the significance of that? Is it just, the, you know, the growing prevalence of the swastika in the time that Lovecraft was writing? Or is it, that's like an ancient Celtic symbol, right? Yeah, it is. That's the it's sort of I'm trying to figure out what Lovecraft might have thought about this, because it says, yeah, in some places there were little stones strewn about like charms with something like what you might call a swastika nowadays, which I think is. And he says probably that old one sign that he had been talking about. Yeah. Now, the old ones, they're immortal. So, you know, the swastika has been used for that. Like you say, it's thousands of years old by disparate groups of people for all sorts of things. So maybe the point is just that the old one sign is is this really old sign but it was a nazi symbol already right yeah specifically it was a, sing- a sign of aryan descent huh it it, it was t- the reason they picked up the swastika the reason hitler used the swastika is it was a symbol like it was such an old symbol and it was supposed to be a symbol that had been used over long periods of time by people who were of a good bloodline hey you know speaking of bloodlines recently in the news there was a study that came out it, it looks like everybody but africans are part Neanderthal. I was going to bring that up later. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't read that. So Africans are like pure Cro-Magnon, and us Europeans are all half Neanderthal. Not half, but part part Neanderthal. Well, so all right, I'm I'm totally getting off uh, kind of the narrative here, the synopsis. But I was curious that so we can we can mate with these deep ones, humans. I shouldn't say us. <laughs> all right, in this fiction, people can. There's something about. I mean, there's reference made that there's something about these creatures from another sea that's like us. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we can mate with them. Mm-hmm. Yet they are worshippers of Dagon and Hydra and Cthulhu. Uh-huh. I'm totally nerding out here. But my assumption was that the Deep Ones are sort of the spawn of Cthulhu somehow. That they lived in Relay and that they worshipped him and that they're all of the same thing. So uh-huh. by that Mountains of Madness kind of prehistory, they would actually be made of some kind of different substance than say the Shoggoths and the Elder Things uh-huh. are which are like human things but now I'm thinking as a result of the story that when the Elder Things were designing the Shoggoths and they had all that cast off kind of material that just floated around like the Deep Ones evolved from that yes and they just took up Dagon and Hydra and that sort of thing as a religion right but they're not actually of Cthulhu no. spawn or no like I don't think so I think well I mean that's how I've always taken it is that the Deep Ones are just like a different kind of branch of humans or experiments of the elder things right and they just you know their 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 culture came up from being underwater and ours were more arboreal or or land-based or whatever and so we're kind of different Mm -hmm. different forks but you know there obviously some relation yeah and that's what i was when i was sort of formulating that thought i thought oh it's sort of kind of how like the europeans made it we have that small genetic code that's made up of the neanderthal who are Uh extinct and went extinct you know what 
however many thousands of years ago. But in the people that stayed in Africa, they didn't have anything to do with Neanderthals. So it's almost like the same kind of thing. It's, it's very, very interesting. <laughs> the islanders eventually, though, they do have to pay that price where they have to mate with the Neanderthals, so to speak, right? Eventually the... Yeah. The fishmen come up and they're like, here's the deal. This is what we want. We'll give you immortality, but you have to do something. Right. And uh, as Zadok is relating the story, he says, When it come to mating with them toad-looking fishes, the Kanakis kind of balked. But finally they learned something that's put a new face on the matter. Seems that human folks has got a kind of relation to such water beasts. That everything alive come out of the water once and only needs a little change to go back again. Them things told the Kanakis that if they mixed bloods, there'd be children as it looked human at first, but later turn more and more like the things till finally they'd take to the water and jine the main lot of things down there. And this is the important part, young fella. Them as turned into fish things and went into the water wouldn't never die. Them things never died except they was killed violent. So that sort of exposes the whole mystery here. Well, I mean, that's sort of the big thing, too, is that, you know, they're they're getting immortality out of it. The islanders are, but then when Obed goes back to the village and tries to kind of convince them, he doesn't really relate that whole narrative to them, right? I think that Obed thinks that he can get away with something because basically what happens is after the mating happens, um, that's what you referenced earlier when the other islanders come and they just kill everybody on that island. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's back um, in, the, in, the, in the Far East. Right, so back in the South Seas, the, the mating starts to happen between the, the thing and the things in the water. I mean, that actually goes on for quite some time. Yeah, that's, that's like ancient history. Yeah, that's ancient history because there's grandmothers down there talking to their great-grandmothers, etc. This is yeah. something that happened over generations over generations. Exactly. And, and while Kia had given Obed Marsh, he gave him some kind of thing. He, I think he calls it a, a thingamajig. Yeah. <laughs> he says, if you drop this down in the sea and you say the right kind of prayers, you can have what we have back at home. Yeah. You know, you don't have to come out here. It's like deep one bait of some kind. Right. Like if you put it down there, if there's a pocket of them around, they're going to start coming. It's out. a pager. It's a deep one pager. And, you know, but Obed doesn't need to do that at that point because he's getting gold from the islanders and he's shipping it back to Innsmouth for the refinery. However, around uh, 38, when Obed shows up, the people are all wiped out from the island. Yeah, because the neighboring island was thinking that they all did evil right. things, which they, which they were. Yeah, but that's bad for Innsmouth because no gold's coming in anymore. After exactly. That. That's when everybody starts praying to Christ again. Oh, I wish that things weren't so bad. And Obed's like, you guys are fools. <laughs> <laughs> I could do something that would bring the fish around. And he doesn't tell them anything about the mating or anything. No, like no, he leaves that part out. But I think that Obed might think that he could just get the fish. And the gold. Yeah, fish and the gold, but not have to go to that extra step. Right. See, that's interesting because I'm not sure. I don't know if he knows or, or doesn't. I think he does know. I, and I think he doesn't really care. And he's willing to make that deal with the devil. I think he suspects what what happened with those islanders are going to happen with the people of Innsmouth. Where they'll be happy to get the fish and they'll be happy to get the gold and they'll be willing to do what is necessary to keep, keep it coming. Oh, man, the story is so cool. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> So let's, we're going to leave it there. We're, we've run out of time, unfortunately. But, yeah, uh, we're cruising. I thought we were going to get further, but uh, there's just so much good stuff. Oh, it's so good. I'm so, oh, this is so neat. I love it. Yeah, it's great. It's a great story. So that, that aforementioned plague in the last episode we talked about in 46, everything had been kind of, there was some kind of plague and everybody uh-huh. had been kind of cleared out of the town and that's why it's empty. So when we get in the next episode, we're going to talk about what happened. What exactly and, happened. Uh, finish up Zadok's story and then get into the adventure segment of the Shadow of Burnsmith. 
Uh, Matt, can you join us again next time? Uh, yes, I can. Yes. Yay. Sweet. Good. And uh, we should have Andrew Lehman reading for us as well. Thanks, Andrew, for the reading you did today. Thank you so much, Andrew. Also, I want to remind listeners to please donate so that we can release the reading of The Call of Cthulhu, which is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. We'll get that going once we uh, once we reach the $3,000 mark. And, uh, and, and that's all we've got for today. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Matt Parisi. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. All right.